The Torah content for this week has been sponsored by Judah and Naomi Dardik in honor of Rabbi Moskowitz's second yard site and in appreciation for all those whose love of Torah and excitement for ideas shines in their teaching. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the audio version of the four-page article I wrote and published on my Substack. I'm laughing because uh, I've recorded this many times, and I accidentally said Substack because I think I'm a little sad that I've made so many mistakes. Okay, anyway that I recorded and published on my Substack at rabbishnewis.substack.com on May 15, 2023, which was originally published on my blog at kolhasredium.blogspot.com on May 22, 2020. And the article is entitled, Bamidbar, the Terminal Bachelorhood of Nadav and Avihu. The census of the Levim begins with Aharon and his sons. Quote, this is from Bamidbar 3, uh, Psukim 2 through 4. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. The firstborn was Nadav and Abihu, Elazar and Itamar. These were the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed Kohanim, whom he inaugurated to minister. Nadav and Abihu died before Hashem when they offered a strange fire before Hashem in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. Elazar and Itamar ministered during the lifetime of Aaron, their, uh, their father. End quote. The question is, why does the Pasuk emphasize that Nadav and Vihu had no children? This information seems irrelevant in a census, the point of which is to count actual children rather than children that never were. The Pshat, straightforward answer given by most commentators, is that the first half of the Pasuk preemptively explains the end of the Pasuk. Elazar and Isamar ministered during the lifetime of Aharon their father. If Nadav and Avihu had sons, these sons would have inherited the prestigious positions of adjuncts Kohanim Gedolim from their fathers. Since they didn't have sons, these positions passed on to their brothers, Elazar and Itamar. A different kind of answer is stated in the Midrash. Now I'm going to read the footnote here. This Midrash appears in a number of different texts with variations between them. Perhaps the most authentic version is the one that appears in Talmud Bavli, Yivamus 64a. I've chosen to use the version of that Midrash as cited by the Torah Tamima, both because it is phrased in a more standalone manner and because I subsequently referenced the Torah Tamima's commentary later on. I guess that's a typo. Okay. Anyway, back to the quote. Quote from the Midrash, one who does not engage in attempting to fulfill the mitzvah of Peru Uruvu, being fruitful and multiplying, is liable for death. As it is stated, Nadav and Vihu died and they did not have children, implying that if they had children, they would not have died. End quote. This Midrash is agadic, non-legal, rather than halachic, legal, and is clearly not intended to be taken literally. According to halacha, one who does not engage in Peru Uruvu is not actually liable for death. Furthermore, not of an Avihu didn't die because they neglected Puru Uruvu, but because they, quote, offered before Hashem a strange fire, uh, which that he had not commanded them, as it says in Vayikra 10 too. This is clear from the fact that each and every time the deaths of Nadav and Avihu are mentioned in Tanakh, this is the reason given for their death. Uh, hold on here. If so, the question is, what, what does this Midrash mean when it says that if Nadav and Avihu had children, they wouldn't have died? The Torah Tamima offers the following explanation, quote, this is to be understood in light of Tanis 4a, which states Yaakov Avinu didn't die because, quote, his offspring are alive and therefore he is not considered to be dead, end quote. And Bava Basra 116a, which states, why does it say lying down for David's death, but merely death for Yoav? Because David left behind a son like him, whereas Yoav did not. Here, too, the intent is that if Nadav and Avihu had sons, these sons would have served in their place, and if that had been the case, it wouldn't have mentioned the deaths of Nadav and Avihu because they would live on through their sons, end quote. This explanation aims to connect the Midrashic interpretation of our Pasuk to the Pshat explanation stated above. The lives, quote-unquote, of Nadav and Avihu were defined by their Avodas Hashem, their divine service, in their positions of adjuncts Kohanim Gedolim. If they had sons and their sons succeeded them in this role, then this life of theirs would not have ended. 
However, there is a harsher midrashic take on the causal relationship between the childlessness of Nadav and Avihu and their fate. This comes from um, Midrash Agada Bamidbar 3. Uh, I don't, never quite understood what that collection of Midrash Agada is, but uh, it says Booper on the uh, edition, I guess. Okay, so here's the Midrash. Uh, quote, and they had no children. But if they did have children, they wouldn't have died. Nadav and Avihu were a Christ... Ah... Uh, <laughs> uh, Typos and uh, and slips all day today. Nadav and Vihu were aristocratic, and the Hebrew term is shchutzim, which Jastro translates as aristocratic, proud, vainglorious, or pompous. So they were aristocratic, saying, Our father is Kohen Gadol, our father's brother is a king, our mother's brother is a prince, and we are the two chiefs of the kahuna, of the priesthood. Which woman is good enough for us? And they withheld themselves and didn't desire to marry any woman to fulfill Peru Uruvu. That sin caused them to die by fire. End quote. An even more condemnatory version of this midrash elaborates on their sin, and this is from Tanhuma in uh, Sefer Vayikra Akremos 6. Quote, Rabbi Levi said, Nadav and Avihu were exceedingly aristocratic. They would say, which woman is good enough for us? There were many lonely women sitting and waiting for them, but they said, they said, our father's brother is king, our father is Kohen Gadol, and our mother's brother is a prince, and we are chiefs of the kahuna. Which woman is good enough for us? End quote. And a footnote here, I translated this as uh, many lonely women. The term here is agunos, but it can't actually mean the halakhic term of aguna. So um, the term literally means deserted, and since we're talking about unmarried women, I translated it as lonely. Okay, the Midrash goes on. Rav Menachema said in the name of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Nechemia, regarding Nadav and Avihu, David said in Tehillim 78.63, fire consumed his young men, with a capital H, and his maidens had no marriage celebrations. Why were his young men consumed by fire? Because his maidens had no marriage celebrations. Another proof can be brought from the Pasuk in Shemos 24.1. To Moshe, he said, go up to Hashem, you and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu. This teaches that Moshe and Aaron would walk ahead, Nadav and Avihu would walk behind them, and all of Israel were behind them, and they, Nadav and Avihu, would say, when, when will these two old men die so that we can exert our authority over the community in their place? End quote from the Midrash Tanchuma. These alternative Midrashic accounts shed quite a different light on the notion that Nadav and Avihu died because they had no children. According to these Midrashim, it wasn't the transgression of abstaining from Peru Uruvu per se which made them liable. Rather, it was the aristocratic bearing which gave rise to this transgression and warranted this punishment. The problem is that these Midrashim take, make Nadav and Avihu out to seem like they had some real serious problems. Are we really to believe that the sons of Aaron and Cohen took such petty pride in their own status and in the status of their family members? Did they really think that no woman was good enough for them, knowing full well that Moshe and Aaron each got married despite their greatness? Most astounding of all, are we really supposed to believe that Nadav and Avihu eagerly awaited the deaths of their beloved father and their illustrious uncle so that they could seize power to lord it over the community? Sorry, seize power to lord over the community? It is quite difficult to accept this portrait of Nadav and Avihu at face value. Remember that these are the individuals whom Hashem referred to as my close ones in Vayikra 10.3 and who were second only to Moshe and Aaron in their proximity to the divine glory at Sinai in Shemos 24.1 and 9. In my view, the answer is no. Nadav and Avihu were not the pompous megalomaniacs depicted in these Midrashim. Rather, I believe that this is a case in which the Midrashim employ the device of exaggeration in order to make a point. As Chazal said, in Masechus um, Tamid 29a, the Torah spoke in an exaggerated language, the prophet spoke in an exaggerated language, and the sages spoke in an exaggerated language. This style, this stylistic device of magnifying the imperfections of tzaddikim is frequently employed by the psukim themselves in order to make it easier for us to learn from their flaws, which would otherwise be too subtle for us to appreciate. For example, uh, the psukim say 
in Breshis 3522, Reuven went and slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Or in Shoftim 14.1, Shimshon went down to Timnas, and in Timnas he saw a woman of the daughters of the Philistines and married her. Or in 1 Malachim 11.7, Shlomo built an altar for Chemosh, the, the abomination of Moab, on the mount facing Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. According to the traditional interpretations, none of these tzaddikim committed the serious transgressions described in the psukim. All of these narratives are exaggerations of the transgressions or flaws, which were much less severe and which were blown out of proportion out of proportion for rhetorical and didactic effect. And if the psukim themselves are known to do that, then certainly a Gothic midrashim can be expected to follow suit. I believe that the authors of these midrashim would acknowledge that Nadavan Vihu died because they, quote, offered before Hashem a strange fire that he had not commanded them, end quote, as the psukim explicitly state. Having acknowledged that, the authors of these midrashim are theorizing about the personal shortcoming which led to this severe transgression. Based on the information provided in the psukim, the authors of these midrashim maintain that Nadavan Vihu had an underlying sense of aristocratic pride in their roles as adjunct Kohanim Gedolim, which gave them unconscious feelings of superiority, and, de- and they derived incidental gra- gratification from the power they held. In other words, these were not open faults in their character. If they were, the Torah would have been more explicit in divulging such information, which would be critical in order to understand why they died. It is quite possible that this deep-seated streak of aristocratic pride didn't manifest itself outwardly at all. According to these midrashim, it was this underlying feeling of pride which led Nadavanavihu to quote, make a halakhic decision in the presence of Moshe, their teacher. That is a quote from Masechus Erevin 63a, uh, by offering the strange fire without being commanded. It was this unconscious aristocratic mentality that caused them to defer marriage and procreation on the pretext of not finding suitable wives. It was this idle musing about who might take over as the nation's spiritual leaders after Moshe and Aaron died, which rose in their imagination when they stood on the mountain and saw the God of Israel and which nearly prompted divine retribution, as it is stated, against the great men of Israel, he, God, did not stretch out his hand. How are we to understand their punishment? According to the Pshat, they died by fire because they brought a strange fire, a Mita Keneged Mita, measure for measure. But perhaps according to these Midrashim, one can see a different level of Mita Keneged Mita, which corresponded to their underlying flaw. They unconsciously sought to supplant Moshe and Aaron in order to claim a permanent place in the eternal pantheon of the Israelite hierarchy, and they believed that they were too good to perpetuate the human race. As a punishment, their lives were prematurely cut short, and because of their abstention from Peru Uruvu, they left no offspring through whom they could live forever, in the sense that Yaakov and David lived forever through their progeny. There are two takeaway lessons for us, one in methodology and the other in human perfection. The lesson in methodology is that the authors of Midrashim will expound on any textual clue, no matter how small, even if there is some lesson that can be, sorry, if there is some lesson that could be extrapolated from it. And when it looks like they're making a mountain out of a molehill, they're really just embellishing the presentation of their theory in order to make a subtle concept into a blatant part of the narrative. The lesson in human perfection is that a misplaced sense of pride is an insidious thing which can plague even the greatest of men, often on account of their genuine greatness. Like a small crack in a large dam, this pride can grow and spread imperceptibly until it's too imperceptibly until it's too late, and the entire edifice comes crumbling down. Okay, if you made it that far, then uh, then presumably you forgive me my typos. Ah, typos. My my my. Uh, what do you call them? Parapraxies. My my slips. But that's what happens when you don't get sleep. Okay, that's enough. 
If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbischneeweiss at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading, and thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.